Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. And welcome to another episode of the Black Letter Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about video and how it's used in an evidentiary setting, how lawyers might use video. And got an expert with us today, David Notowitz. Am I saying your name right, David? Yes, you are. Thanks. Notowitz is joining us today. And David Ludwig, a courtroom lawyer and professor at George Washington University, a law professor, is also with us on the phone. David, tell us about your company. What does your company do? Whenever an attorney is representing a client and they get evidence in, often smartphone evidence or surveillance evidence or body camera worn by police, GoPro videos, 911 calls, a lot of different audio, video, smartphone evidence as well. Those kinds of pieces of evidence, digital evidence, clients will send it to us to analyze to enhance, clarify, understand it better. Okay. So, um, you know, I had a couple of questions. David uh, Ludwig and I were talking before the show. And, you know, something that keeps coming up maybe with this election and, and in other contexts, there's something called deep fakes. So the question David Ludwig and I had right out of the gate for each other is, how do we as lawyers know what to look for to be able to know to go to somebody like you to say, well, we think there's a problem with this? Yes. When we get initial evidence into our office, we do an evaluation of that evidence. We analyze the metadata, which do you know what metadata is? Yeah, but I think for our listeners, it's important to talk about what metadata is. So it's, it's the file information, the information that's attached to the file about the author and the date. But why don't you give us a, a more detailed kind of a technical explanation of metadata? Yeah, metadata is all the evidence that's buried in a file that isn't obvious when you just look at it or view it or read it. It could be creation date, modification date, date that, it, like location information, time and date where it was, crea- you know, it was created in this city at this location at this time. So lots of interesting information. But more than that, even for, from a video and audio perspective, is the format that was used to create that file. So it might be resolution of the video, or it could be frame rate or codec use to create this file. And that's important because why? Well, if we can track back which device was used to create it and then compare that to the metadata and say, is this consistent with the type of data that would be created by this kind of device? You can tell from the metadata, whether a file is an original file created by a device, because, and, and let's clarify what a codec is. A codec is a, is a license that certain devices use to allow those devices to capture video or audio. Can you explain how a, what, why a codec might be important? 
Codec actually means compress, decompress. Codec. Okay. Compress, Good. decompress. Okay. It's a short version of that. And it's the way in which a file was saved, the format that was used to save that file. And there are many different iterations of codecs, different styles of codecs, different ways that different systems will save files. And that affects resolution of the image and it affects really the data and how it was saved. So if we can analyze that a little bit, sometimes that can help us track, well, was, is this an original file or is this actually a saved file? And that can be innocently done and it is done all the time. And that can help us not just determining with deep fakes, which is what we're talking about at this exact moment, but it's related to all areas of our work because we always want to get the most original version of the video that we can, okay. the most original audio, because that will allow us to analyze it more in detail. If we can get the most original copy, that's better. So if someone's emailed it to someone else who's then texted it to their attorney, well, we've lost already some of the chain of evidence. And that goes back and we lost some resolution and detail okay. that will help us to see it more clearly. So. This is important because with deep fakes, we want to know a chain of evidence. We want to know right. as much as possible going back in time to the original, and that will help us. So it's not just looking at the video carefully to determine if it's fake or not, but also who had it, when, how long did they have it before it was given over to the next person, how much time, what changes did it go through? So, David, can I ask you, can, so setting aside the fake, so I assume that the principal reason an attorney would come to you is because they're concerned a video was changed or altered. They want to verify its authenticity. But there have got to be other reasons that people come to you as well. Can you enhance, for example, audio and video content? Is there a way to do that in a, in a legal setting that it's still usable as admissible evidence? Like if it's a fuzzy video of a, of a crime or, um, you know, the audio, audio isn't quite uh, understandable and you, can you enhance that and have it still be usable? Yes. So the question is like, why do people come with us? You know, is it just to analyze, is this authentic or not? We get so many different pieces of evidence for so many different reasons. And the most important thing that we can help an attorney do when they bring us evidence is just to get clarity on what they have in front of them. Right. This means Anal helping them analyze frame by frame the video, helping them analyze the audio carefully. We can enhance. Yes, we can. We clarify video. We clarify audio. We analyze cell phone data all the time, all these different areas, because an attorney is looking at it and just says, okay, let's see what we have here. They look at the piece of evidence. They say they watch it on their screen and their computer in their office. And they're just, what we have is what we have. What we see is what we get, and it's not true at all. Not at all. Let me emphasize, <laughs> there's so much more you can do with your evidence if you spend the time with it to analyze frame by frame, because if you don't do that well, the other side may, and the other side often will, and you won't have any way to combat what they're saying. So another thing that I know that comes up frequently, say, in and in the domestic relations context, or probably even in the criminal context, what about text chains? So I know that a lot of times, you know, they'll pull 
text records from a provider, or sometimes in discovery, they'll just produce screenshots of text chains. So if somebody produces a screenshot of a text chain to me as an attorney, the other side, how do I verify? There's a lot you can do now with cell phone analysis. Excellent question. How do you verify a text chain? When they give you text chains in paper, I mean, easily some of those could have been erased before it was given to you. And you should be suspect because you, never, you don't know what you're getting in that situation. How do I find primary source? How do I find, like, what did this originally say? Because I'd love to show that they faked it, right? Exactly. And we do get, we're working on a case right now where we think, we're pretty sure there's text was erased in between right. other texts. It looks full, you know, the conversation back and forth, back and forth. But wait a minute. You know, the client is saying, no, we said more than that. And uh, what's been erased? So if you can get your cell phone, do a professional analysis like we have at our office, we have something called Celebrite. It's, you know, a hugely expensive program that we have that we have expertise in as well. It's not just an expensive program, but you have to know how to use it, as in most situations. You can do a full dump, it's called, of the cell phone data from everything. And on a cell phone today, you might have hundreds of gigabytes of data, right? It might be less. It might be 15 gigabytes, 20, 30, 6, whatever. 256, though, is common now. Do a full dump, and then you can analyze the text messages from inside the phone. I have an expert here in the office, so I can't say everything about it. I can say it'll say if a text has been deleted. You might not get the actual text but maybe you can see signs that something was deleted. Okay. Yeah, so David Ludwig, I'm going to turn it over to you. So put on your professor hat for a second. What am I not thinking about? I mean, I think the issues are myriad from a perspective of evidence, of course. Like, what's really interesting about this is how much might be lost maybe at the margins. Like, of course, the smoking gun of the deleted text, that's amazing find. What's popping in my mind, kind of percolating, is sort of the cropped photo or the body cam footage where, you know, maybe 20 minutes were recorded, but we only got 10 minutes, you know, where things are um, manipulated just at the margins enough to create a, um, a deceptive presentation, perhaps, or, or maybe just not tell the whole story. That's kind of more interesting at the margins to me about kind of the one missing piece in the text chain or the something cropped out of the frame or something that that sort of limits our knowledge and the ability to maybe even if we can't recover what's missing, at least know that something was missing. It's not necessarily done nefariously. We often get police. Look, police are great at, I mean, some would disagree with me, but police are usually awesome at arresting people. They're great at putting people in holds. I know it's a big controversial subject, but they're great at physical stop, physically stopping people and arresting them, and all the techniques of that, working with their partners, and working with other police cars, and working with drones, and whatever. They're good, but they're not good with technology often. They make mistakes. They might take out their phone and record the screen, because they don't even know how to get into the system. Now, that might be all we have, but if we can go back to that system quickly, or even later, and it still might be there, and get it off the system directly, we can get a higher resolution version that we can use that might show us something really important. Or it might, like you said, David, go back in time farther 
if we can go back to that system and get two hours prior to see, for example, we deal with civil cases too, people tripping or someone spilling something two hours before or someone else tripping on stuff or whatever it is. But often it's not on purpose. It's just someone emailed someone, someone then texted someone that same evidence and it got compressed. And now we can't see what we want to see or hear what we want to hear. Okay. As a lawyer who hasn't, frankly, I've used video evidence more as a demonstrative tool than as a piece of evidence because in, in the world that I'm in, in IP space, it's usually explaining something or it's not usually a primary piece of evidence, demonstrative evidence. But if I get a piece of, I do get text chains and other things and, and emails in particular, what are the top, if you could, and I don't know if you can, if you can narrow it down to three things that as a lawyer, whether it's video or text or email, that should make me suspicious of evidence I get in discovery. That would be a, a great, like, three or four, two, whatever, you know, major things. You're like, hey, these are big, obvious flags. You need to talk to somebody like me to get, you know, to, to look at this evidence. One thing that comes to mind right off the bat is that attorneys don't spend the time they need to analyzing their evidence when it comes to digital evidence. So okay. they'll get all kinds of, they'll get the transcripts in, they'll get police reports, they'll get, they'll do depositions and they'll look at all, you know, they'll memorize all this stuff. They'll read all the court documents carefully and they'll have all that stuff at the tip of their fingers, tip of their tongue, ready to share, ready to argue something. But when it comes to the video evidence, they don't spend as much time and that's what needs to happen. Often attorneys will not become experts, let's say, because they can't. Attorneys are great at books. They're great at reading, but they're not so good with the technology. At least I found in my experience. The good thing is that they should know to become experts just as much with how they became experts with their other evidence. Become experts with the video and audio evidence frame by frame so that you can have it ready to go when from the beginning of trial and even way before that, of course, but especially from beginning of trial at the opening statements, when the other side is saying something, right. you want to be able to say, wait, and even object to an opening statement, which I've seen done in court when the expert, when the attorney was like an expert, fully clear on the evidence, he can object to an opening statement comment in front of a jury. It looks very good which is really rare, I will tell you, and judges still frown at you. You have to be really, really on your, on your yeah. game to object to an opening statement. And they have yes. to be really, really bad. One time in trial, you know, opening statement, the other side put up a still frame. And they said, this is, and you're going to see my hands here, this is the moment before our client, the defendant, talking about us. This is the prosecution talking. This is the moment before Mr. Blank was going to swing and hit this person. And we knew that this frame was not that. What it was, was the frame right after our client had pulled away because the other guy had grabbed his arm. So he had pulled away like this. And the other side was saying, this is him swinging, getting ready to swing. And actually, what I'm going to do is uh, allow you to, I'm going to give you that frame of the transcript that you can put up because okay. it's yeah, really yeah. interesting to see 
where he says, in opening statement, I have that transcript because it was so interesting to me. I got a hold of it. It was shot down, you know, and I'll show you that. So he was misleading. So the prosecutor and, and I, David, I don't know if you're, I was a prosecutor. I can't imagine that any prosecutor would intentionally do that. But, you know, he got his evidence from somebody and it wasn't looked at carefully. It's probably what happened. And I bet it hurt. So I'm curious to see what that transcript says. Well, I'll highlight the little area for you so you can see this piece that I mean. It's a very powerful moment. And it's something that the jury won't forget, right? And you can go back to that in closing arguments, right? And you say, as the attorney, which I'm not, but you guys are, the attorneys would say, since the beginning, they've been trying to deceive you. And here's the, right. you know, the proof right here. So it's a very powerful moment when you can remind people of how the the evidence has been manipulated and how they've been trying to be tricking you all this time. Item number one, I get loud and clear is attorneys need to be familiar with digital and audio and video evidence of all kinds, especially the, the, that involved in their case. And then point number two, you seem to make anecdotally was that you need to be careful with it. So be familiar with it, but also be careful with what evidence you're presenting. There's, there's two sides to, you know, yeah, it's a great benefit to have a beautiful picture of what looks like somebody stabbing somebody, but if it's them pulling away and the other side can prove it, they're going to double down on the, the damage they can cause your case. What do you think the third big point, Mike? Often people don't realize, attorneys don't realize how much evidence is embedded in what they have. For example, height analysis, speed, the distance can be deceiving on your video, a lens can distort the evidence so that to the jury, you might not even think of this, but to the jury, it looks like something is really far away. It looks far away, but in reality, it's just a few feet away, but this lens distorted it. Um, You know, for example, you know, when you have evidence, you know, on your, it's a good example, on a car, right? On your rear view mirror, which you're in right now, a car, right? So in your rearview mirror, look on the, the right side. It says on the mirror often, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Mine are, mine are unprinted. Sorry. Oh, wait, wait, here we go. There it is. You see, you might not be able to see it in this, in this presentation, but if you, if you were to get close, you would see that it says objects in mirror are closer than they appear. That's because it's a bended lens. It's the same thing with cameras. And so right. evidence... What it looks like to a jury is very important. You have to be aware of that as an attorney. How is my jury perceiving this evidence? And I might need to make them aware, for example, and the exact example I'm giving now, the two people are actually much closer than they appear to, gotcha. each, to each other. Is there anything else you think we need to, we need to hit on here? I'm, I feel massively more educated and now more worried about the evidence that we're using all the time. I guess we've been scraping by for 20 years on what we know. And we, and we do use experts to put stuff together. And it's a little bit different in the, in the patent litigation world than in the criminal and, and uh, you know, personal injury world, but um, not as frequent. Dave, what do you think? Other thoughts? Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. I mean, as anyone that does trial work knows, like the, the story that the jury perceives is almost as or more important than the legal arguments. And I think what David has highlighted here is as how lawyers can get really caught up in the legal arguments, but maybe lose sight of a little bit about what the juries are really seeing in terms of the story and the narrative. And, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. If we've got a video clip that's really powerful, that can be a game changer for a jury. And they may ignore 
you know, the vast swaths of other evidence in favor of a compelling, you know, video clip or something like that. So to be able to, I guess, cross-examine or analyze that video clip or to uh, explain it, you know, why he was, the arm was here as drawing away versus moving forward or space between people that it may be a little bit deceptive based on the clip, even if it wasn't manipulated, just based on perspectives and other things. And to be able to bring that in, usually when we use video evidence, it's just like David said at the outset, it is what it is. And you just play it for the jury and they can, they see what they see and it, and that's all. Uh, but to, um, to add those additional evidentiary factors of bringing an expert in and saying, well, actually, you know, this looks like 15 feet away, but it was only seven feet. Does that change your perception of how things played out and so forth would be very powerful, not to mention all of the, um, you know, metadata and other information buried in there uh, in terms of enhancements and other stuff. So I think it could really be a a huge tool for either uh, using kind of digital evidence to, to a better advantage or perhaps, you know, questioning the other side's evidence or something. So um, I guess the only other thing that I, we've touched on it a little bit, of course, um, is the kind of the evidentiary admissibility of some of the video evidence in terms of, and David mentioned at the outset a little bit about chain of custody and authenticity. But a lot of times, you know, we'll get a video and the other attorney will say, oh, this was taken by my client's cell phone on August 23rd. And we just say, okay, and nobody questions that part of it. You just sort of put it up and say, it's cell phone video from so-and-so. It may not be what, it's, what it seems to be and that there's so much more to that. David, can you speak to some of those sort of admissibility, authenticity issues that we have, like other than just cropping or intentional manipulations, um, but kind of more subtle things like that? One case that comes to mind was when metadata said one thing and we realized Let's look at this more carefully. And we got, we actually subpoenaed the hard drive and we found other images that looked exactly the same or very, very similar that showed different metadata from months before. And so we proved in court and the judge threw out the case in the middle of the case because of this, that the dates that they had claimed an event happened could not have happened on those dates. So the actual dates were off by months. And it didn't make any sense. It could have been self-inflicted. Who knows what these injuries were from? But the metadata proved, and the analysis of the hard drives and getting off other images proved that their evidence was wrong. But all the time, you, have to, you can't just accept what you have and what you're given. You cannot accept it. Huge error. Even sometimes frame rate, your frame rate might be it might show up, you know, normally when you're on phones or on watching something on television, it might be 30 frames a second, normal video these days. But frame rates from surveillance or from body cameras can be less. And in, those, in between those frames, things can happen. So you have to be really aware of that, that informa- information of what happened is lost, possibly. Certain jerky movements, certain gun firing you don't see, um, people yelling. Certain phrases could be cut off, whatever. You have to be really careful and aware. So, yeah, the evidentiary, you know, acceptance of just what you get is a huge mistake. Make sure we are given enough time to do our work. As a plaintiff attorney, when we get called, the plaintiff attorney calls us a week before the deposition, right? Because they don't want to spend money, right? I get it. I get that they don't want to spend money. 
but call us a year ahead. Call us six months ahead. Now, a defense attorney often calls us ahead of time more, with more space to do our work. But even then, think it through and analyze your stuff and give us time to do the job that we need to do. That's the first thing. The second thing is try to lock down the evidence. Try to somehow try to subpoena this stuff if you have to. Just buy them a new system. If it's someone who's not related to your case, but you need to get a hold of the evidence, buy them a new surveillance system from Costco. Get a hold of the stuff and just unplug it and put it on your desk. David and David, thanks again for joining us today on the Black Letter Podcast. To all our listeners, thanks once again. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.